If you're enjoying Bradbury 100, please check out my other podcast, Science Fiction 101, in which we explore the past, present and future of science fiction. Find it at 101sf.blogspot.com and head over to YouTube to find my Bradbury 101 series, in which I look at Ray's books and movies. This is Bradbury 100, celebrating the life and work of American writer Ray Bradbury. I'm Phil Nichols of bradburymedia.co.uk. Hello and welcome once again to Bradbury 100. And this time we're finally going to be looking at the life and sad death of Ray Bradbury's Uncle Lester. Now, why on earth would we focus on one uncle out of many that Ray had? Well, it's because Uncle Lester's death impacted on Ray in a number of ways, but also because there's a curious mystery at the heart of the story of the death of Uncle Lester. You may recall in a previous episode, and also on my website, I revealed the true story of The Lonely One, the fictitious character that appears in a couple of Bradbury stories, and who is a dominating, almost unseen, but clearly felt presence throughout Dandelion Wine. Now, The Lonely One, although a purely fictional character, had a real-life counterpart, and to me, that real-life story of the real lonely one is almost as interesting as the fictional one. And there's a similar thing going on with the Uncle Lester story, although Ray didn't use Uncle Lester directly in his fiction. But he did speak about Uncle Lester in interviews and in presentations and essays. And it's clear that a member of his close family dying from a gunshot wound when Ray was 12, well, that sounds like a life-altering event. In interviews, Ray sometimes spoke of how poor his family was, and illustrated this by referring to the fact that when he was a young man, the only suit he had was one that he had inherited from a dead relative. That relative was Uncle Lester. Here's an extract from one such interview. Ray said, My father, who was a power company worker, moved our family from Waukegan, Illinois, to Los Angeles. He'd walk for miles every day looking for work, and the only two times I ever remember seeing him cry were when my sister died and when he couldn't find a job. We were so poor that we were on relief. The day I graduated from high school, my parents couldn't even afford to buy me a graduation suit, so I wore the suit an uncle of mine had been killed in. He'd been shot by a hold-up man, and the bullet hole went through the front and out the back of the suit. We didn't have enough money to have the bullet hole repaired. That's taken from an interview that appeared in, of all places, Playgirl magazine in 1976. It was titled... Playgirl interview Ray Bradbury, and the journalist who put the article together was Sandra Sheevy. 
Another place where Uncle Lester pops up is in Ray's accounts of meeting Mr Electrico. Now, in case you don't know who Mr Electrico was, I guess I should explain. Although, in reality, nobody knows who Mr Electrico was. But Ray claimed to have met Mr Electrico at a carnival in the 1930s in Waukegan. Twelve-year-old Ray visits the carnival and sees Mr Electrico's sideshow, which involves a man with all sorts of electrical apparatus, including a sword, which he would touch people with and give them an electric shock. Ray stepped forward during this very act, and he was touched with the sword, and Mr Electrico said, Live forever! And Ray wrote about this many times over the years. It was one of his favourite anecdotes. Usually... He was telling this story because he wanted to get across two things. One was his idea that he wanted to live forever, not necessarily in a literal sense, but in the sense of having his works survive him. And the other thing was to emphasise how important magic and carnivals were to him as a child, and indeed as an adult. And as we know, a number of Bradbury books have this strong carnival theme to them, either a, a carnival setting or some kind of carnivalesque way of telling a story, of, of inverting things, flipping things over onto their head. So what's Uncle Lester got to do with any of this? Well, before I connect him to the Mr Electrico anecdote, I guess I should introduce Uncle Lester. Lester Moberg. He was from Ray's mother's side of the family. Ray's mother was Esther Moberg, and Lester was one of her three brothers. Esther and Lester, rhyming names. <laughs> one of the other brothers, by the way, was named Enar, spelt I-N-A-R, Enar. A Scandinavian name, which Ray borrowed with a slight change of spelling for his character and short story Uncle Enar but spelt E-I-N-A-R Now, you might pronounce it Einar and I do sometimes but I'm guessing that Scandinavian pronunciation is probably Enar But back to Lester Moberg In the 1930s Uncle Lester worked as an attendant in a veterans' hospital, and he was himself a veteran of the First World War. And he's been described as dashing and strikingly handsome. His life came to a tragic end in 1932, when he was shot, and he was just 34 years old. OK, so that's Lester Moberg. Now let's put Lester into the Mr Electrico story. Ray said that he met Mr Electrico during the Labour Day weekend of 1932 and that Uncle Lester's funeral was that same weekend. In fact, Ray said he went and talked to Mr Electrico on the way back from the funeral. And then, after the Labour Day weekend the Bradbury family left Waukegan for Tucson, Arizona, 
where Ray's father had landed a new job. Now, think about being 12 years old in a small town in Illinois in 1932. Think of how exciting, exhilarating, frightening that combination of events would have been in such rapid succession. The murder of a close relative, the funeral, the carnival, the whole Labor Day weekend excitement, and then going away, leaving the world he knew, as far as he knew, forever. So I can completely understand how those events emotionally were very strongly connected. Okay, but there is a problem with Ray's recollection, and this was brought to light by Sam Weller in the biography of Ray, the official biography, The Bradbury Chronicles where Sam tried to put together the timeline of these events. And they didn't really work. You have Labor Day, the funeral, and then the family leave for Arizona. But in reality, Labor Day 1932 was the 3rd of September. But Uncle Lester didn't die until the 24th of October. That's seven weeks later. That's a very big gap. And it's impossible to reconcile Ray's distinct recollection of Labor Day weekend and the death of Uncle Lester, when in reality those events were separated by many weeks. Sam Weller's conclusion is that in memory Ray had conflated two memories. By the way, I should point out there is another mystery connected to this, and that is the carnival that Ray remembered attending when he met Mr Electrico. He always remembered the carnival name as being the Dill Brothers Combined Shows. It's a very distinct recollection, and a consistent one, over many decades of him telling the Electrico story. But nobody's been able to track down a Dill Brothers Combined Show. Circus and carnival historians have tried and failed, the assumption is, well, either he misremembered the name of that carnival or it was such a minor set of sideshows that there's just no record of it anywhere. Now, there are lessons for us here. Just because somebody recalls facts and events from their life with vivid detail doesn't mean that they are accurate. Our memory does funny things. And especially every time we retell some event from our past, we kind of replace the memory with the retold version of the event. And over time, things get jumbled and distorted and turned into better stories, but which don't necessarily match the reality. But there was certainly carnival activity in Waukegan on that Labour Day weekend, regardless of the name of the carnival. The events were publicised in the local newspaper on Friday the 2nd of September, where the various shows, which were part of a programme put on by the American Legion, were listed. There was to be music and dance, uh, what they called a Mickey Mouse show with real white mice. Don't know how that works. And there was a beauty competition... No mention 
In that article of a Mr Electrico show or anything remotely like it, and certainly no mention of Dill Brothers or anything like that. And despite lots of efforts by various researchers, nobody has ever been able to reconcile all of this or to solve the mystery of who on earth Mr Electrico really was. But what's important is that September and October of 1932 add up to a pivotal moment in the young Ray Bradbury's life. And quite recently, last couple of years, Paul Donatich has published an article called The Horror of the Blank Page and Ray Bradbury's Death is a Lonely Business. It's an article in which he suggests that Uncle Lester's murder may have influenced Ray's attitude to and conception of death, as it is depicted in Death is a Lonely Business, which is a novel published in the 1980s, one of Ray's late career novels. And it's entirely possible, it seems to me, that the tone of threat and horror and fear of death that permeates dandelion wine and especially Something Wicked This Way Comes could be traced to this same source. This association of the carnival, the fun, the excitement of the carnival, but also the fear that goes along with many carnival sideshows and carnival activity, all of this, coupled with Uncle Lester's death, may have shaped Ray's thinking. So you can see there's some interesting stuff going on here, and Uncle Lester, whether he likes it or not, is mixed up in it. But what really happened to Uncle Lester? How did he come to get shot? Sam Weller, the official biographer, simply calls the death of Uncle Lester the result of a random hold-up. And the fact of the matter is, we don't know for sure, because as far as I can tell, nobody was ever brought to trial for Uncle Lester's killing. But what we do have is the transcript of the coroner's inquest. Because although there was never a trial for the killing, there was an inquest, which was held, incidentally, on the same day that Lester was buried. Now what follows is taken directly from the inquest documents, the official transcript, plus a couple of other documents associated with the inquest. Uh, there's a letter and there's a judgment of divorce. It's a fascinating murder mystery, with some unsavoury details around the edges. But I should warn you now that there is no resolution to this mystery, because it remains an unsolved crime. Come with me now to the inquest into the death of Lester Moberg. We're going to the Wetzel and Peterson Undertaking Company, Waukegan, on the 27th of October, 1932. The inquest is led by the coroner, Dr J. Al Taylor. Also in attendance is Mr J. G. Welsh, who is a representative of the state's attorney from Lake County, and there is a jury of six people. The key witness is one Ethel Miller, who is the only direct witness to the murder of Lester Moberg. Ethel and Lester were an item. Ethel was separated from her husband. Lester was divorced. Ethel and Lester were going out on dates, while Ethel's 
divorce proceedings were pending. They both work at a veterans' hospital, and, indeed, that's where they first met. Ten days ago, Ethel and Lester went to the theatre, the Genesee Theatre in Waukegan. On show that night was a new film, Grand Hotel, starring Greta Garbo, John Barrymore and Joan Crawford. Ethel says that they met that evening at about eight o'clock outside of the hospital and then they went directly to the theatre in Ethel's car. Ethel said she was tired, so rather than stay in town after the theatre, they decided to leave around 11. On their way home, they stopped on a gravel road near a place called Five Points, parked the car in a lane, and 20 minutes later, they were set upon by an armed man who ended up shooting Lester. An apparently random hold-up. So the inquest is mostly straightforward, just recounting the events of that night. Under questioning, Ethel gives more detail on what happened. She says that the killer approached the car with a flashlight which had a large bulb. She says her first thought was that this was someone coming to tell her that she can't park there. And when she saw the man was holding a gun, she thought, he probably thinks we had liquor, but we had not any sign of it. The man opened the car door, but it's not clear from her testimony whether he opened the driver's side door, where she was, or the passenger side door. But from context, it sounds as if the man had approached the passenger side, where Lester was, because when he urges them to both get out of the car, Lester gets out first, and Ethel slides across and gets out the same door, the passenger door. Then the armed man gets Ethel and Lester to turn around so that their backs are facing him. The man goes into the car, grabs the keys from the car, possibly rummages around while he's in there, and then comes back out. Ethel says she was afraid that he was going to drive off with the car, leaving them stranded, and that she whispered to Lester, "'Don't touch him!' Let him get away if necessary. I don't think the man is going to hurt us. We're not going to cause any confusion or trouble. Just let him get away. And then Ethel spoke to the man. She asked him, Are you out of work and need money? And the man replied, Yes, that's what I'm here for. The gunman at some point takes Lester's watch and Ethel's purse, but he later gives them back. Finally, the killer orders Ethel and Lester to get back into the car and he walks away. Now he's about 20 paces from the car at this point, according to Ethel. Ethel goes to start the car but realises the keys aren't there. So Lester calls out through the window, hey, give us back our keys. According to Ethel, at this point the gunman says to Lester, stay where you are, but the woman can come over here and I'll give her the keys. Lester isn't willing for that to happen. He's afraid that the gunman would do something bad to Ethel, so Lester gets out of the car at the same instant that Ethel does. Lester is closer to the man, so he gets to him first. There's a scuffle, and Lester is shot, as Ethel looks on, horrified. Hearing the gunshot, Ethel initially thinks it's the gunman that's been killed, 
that in the scuffle Lester has managed to turn the gun on the villain. But no, Lester is the one who's been shot. Ethel's now in a bit of a panic. She doesn't know quite what to do. She tries to tend to Lester, but then she remembers there's a house just a few hundred yards away. She's seen it earlier. So she runs up towards the house. And the people in that house have only just arrived home. They're closing up the garage and are about to go into the house. Ethel calls out to them for help, and the woman says, If you want help, you've got to come here. We're not coming down to you. So Ethel runs up to them reluctantly. The woman goes with Ethel to see if they can help Lester, and meanwhile the man stays in the house and phones for the police and an ambulance. When the women get back to Uncle Lester, he's crawling around on the floor in very bad shape. But they're able to at least tend to him a little bit and get him into the car where he might be safer. Soon the police arrive, followed by an ambulance, and Lester is taken off to a hospital, where he remains for about a week, and then he dies on the 24th of October. A few days later, the funeral service is held, and on the same day, this coroner's inquest. The verdict of the inquest is that Lester Moberg came to his death from wounds inflicted with a gun in the hands of an unknown party with intent to commit murder. Now, I don't have any new evidence that would change the coroner's verdict in any way, but there are some very curious aspects to this case. You recall I said that the inquest was held at the Undertaker's, Wetzel and Peterson, on the day of Uncle Lester's burial. Now, I don't know a huge amount about coroner's court proceedings, but that seems a very strange time and place to hold an inquest. The reason that it was held there and then is all part of the peculiarity of the timeline surrounding these events. What I haven't told you so far is some of the minutiae that emerge during this inquest. The first line of questioning that's given to Ethel is about where she lives and where she's going. So we first of all establish that her permanent home is in Athens, Ohio, and she's in Waukegan because that's where her nursing post happens to be. But she is about to be moved somewhere else. She's about to go to West Virginia. And this is why the inquest is held at the Undertaker's on the day of the funeral. In the middle of the inquest, the coroner makes quite a lengthy statement. He says, The night before last, Mrs Miller called me up rather late in the evening, around eight, and she asked me if it was important for her to testify at this inquest, that she was the person that was with Mr Moberg at the time he was shot, and she was transferred to West Virginia, and was to be down there by the first of the month, and wanted to get away right away. And, of course, Mr Moberg had just died that day, I believe. I told her I understood she was the only witness to the shooting, and that the body had just been posted. 
She came out yesterday morning and made almost the same statement word for word as she has given here. The thought came to my mind that perhaps the state's attorney didn't know she was going to leave. I didn't tell you, Mrs. Miller, but I went into another room and called him up, and I asked if he knew she was going to leave, and he said he didn't. So it seems the minute Lester Moberg died, Ethel wanted out of there. She'd been reposted and seemed very keen to get out of town fast. And it sounds a bit as if the authorities were worried that their key witness was going to leave the state. OK, let's rewind the timeline. Let's go back to the 17th of October. On this day, a letter is written to Ethel Miller telling her that she is being reposted to West Virginia. This is what the letter says. Dear Madam, you are hereby relieved from duty and directed to proceed at your own expense from North Chicago to Huntingdon, West Virginia, at such a time as will enable you to report on the 1st of November or soon thereafter. This transfer, by the way, is on a level grade and a level salary. It's simply a transfer of location. It's not a promotion or anything. So this letter is written on the 17th of October. And also on the 17th of October, Ethel goes on the theatre date with Lester. And Lester is shot. The next day, the 18th of October, that letter arrives at Ethel's house. And then, nearly a week later, the 24th, Lester dies in hospital. Ethel decides to immediately leave town, but she stays around for the funeral on the 27th, and that's when the inquest is held. And the very next day, the 28th, she is due to leave for West Virginia. One thing we don't know is whether this came out of the blue or whether maybe Ethel had requested this transfer. She doesn't say, and nobody at the inquest thinks to ask. She simply says that the letter arrived and gave her new instructions. I find that a curious coincidence, but it's not the only coincidence. Lester Moberg dies on the 24th of October. The very next day, the 25th, Ethel is granted a divorce from her estranged husband. This is turning out to be a very strange time for Ethel Miller. The Millers Ethel and William They got married five years ago. They separated three years ago. They have one child. The divorce papers record that William had inflicted quote, extreme and repeated cruelty end quote, on Ethel. The divorce judgment finds that William is not fit to parent their child, but that Ethel is. So the judgment of divorce grants sole custody to Ethel. How very curious that her reposting her divorce, the shooting of Lester, the death of Lester, all of this happened in one week. Given the cruelty that William Miller had inflicted on Ethel, 
I can't help wondering if William might have been Lester's killer. And indeed, this suggestion becomes a focus of questioning at the inquest. Mr Welsh, the representative of the state's attorney, leads this part of the questioning. Mrs Miller, I judge from your name that you are married. My divorce is granted now, but I don't have the papers yet. Remember, her divorce went through just two days ago. Where was your divorce granted? Down here, at Waukegan. And Mr Miller, where does he live? I can't say just where he is living now. I haven't been corresponding with him for the last few months. Where was his last known address? Marion, Indiana. Has he been in Waukegan at any time during the time that you have been at Great Lakes Hospital? Yes, he has. Did you live with him in Waukegan? Yes. How recently have you seen him? I haven't seen him since March. And he came to Great Lakes then, did he? He came to the hospital. This divorce was granted this month in October. Yes. And you were the complainant there? Yes. Has there been any feeling between you and your husband, or was it just an amicable settlement? Well, I can just tell you about it. He has insisted that I leave my job since I've been here, give it up or give him up. And I didn't feel that I could give up my job, and I told him that I wouldn't. And he's the one that brought this subject of divorce up. And owing to the fact that he brought it up, immediately I thought of the baby, and that I wanted to protect myself and have him. So I get down to an attorney right away, and I know he had in his mind to get the baby, and I know I am in a better position to take care of him. Did he know of your friendship with Mr Moberg? No, he did not. How frequently had you been in Mr Moberg's company? Since the swimming season. I knew him before that, but I didn't go out with him. You've been swimming with him? Yes. Been to the theatre with him? Sure. Dances? Yes, we danced. You don't think that Mr Miller knew anything about it? No, absolutely no, sir. This all happened on October the 17th, and at that time had your divorce been heard in the circuit court? No. When was the evidence put in? Just a few days ago. Since the 17th? Yes. Are you positive in your own mind that this wasn't Mr Miller that night? Absolutely I am. Then there are a few questions about the appearance of Mr Miller compared to Ethel's description of the gunman, and Mr Walsh continues with the line of questioning. You don't feel that your marital difficulties with Mr Miller had anything to do with this? No. And the feeling relative to the custody of this child had nothing to do with this? No. And there was no disposition on his part to fight the divorce? I don't know. Did any attorney represent him in these hearings last week? No. Was he served with the papers, or were they mailed to him? Mailed. You don't think he was personally served with the papers? I don't believe so. And you don't know when this divorce was pending, whether he knew or not? Well, he knows that I was applying for it. But no personal service was had upon him. It was published. Yes, I told the attorney. But you didn't know where he was 
so that he could be personally served? No. And the last you saw of your husband was March? Last March? I think that's all. What's driving the state's attorney's questions here is that William Miller didn't contest the divorce. More importantly, he didn't even respond. Ethel had filed for divorce back in August, and William Miller was called to testify at the beginning of October. After failing three times to respond to the court summons, the divorce judgment was granted against him by default. It certainly seems that there are at least three things that would be some motive for Mr Miller going after Ethel and Lester with a gun, especially if he found out about the divorce around the time of the 17th of October. For example, if he was not living at the last known address in Marion, Indiana, and it took weeks for the court summonses to reach him. Consider these three possible motives. One, jealousy over Lester Moberg dating his wife. Two, Mr Miller had insisted his wife choose between her job or him, and now she was shifting her job to another state, a rejection of him. And three, the divorce itself, with its threat of taking away Mr Miller's access to his child. Now, I should stress that we have no direct evidence of these motives, merely a suspicion that has clearly arisen in the minds of the state's attorney and the coroner. And then there are some other slight oddities in the testimony given by Ethel. You'll recall, after Lester had been shot, she ran to a nearby house to get help. Well, Mr Mick, one of the people who live at that house, also testifies at the inquest. After establishing that the Micks had just arrived home, questioning turns to the car that was parked nearby. In fact, there might have been two cars, because there was the car that Ethel and Lester were in, but also possibly the murderer came by car. On the way to your place from Five Points, did you see a car? There was a car standing 25 feet west. Was there a man around it? No, sir. Were there lights on that car? No, sir. Do you know what kind of a car it was? It was an open touring car, an old car. And did you see another car further down the road? No, sir, I couldn't see. It was too dark. Do you see the lady here in this room that came to your house that night? Yes, sir. And Mr Mick points to Ethel Miller. You talked with her, did you, after she got to your place? She came up and started to scream, Come out! I want help! He's shot! And my missus hollered, If you want anything, you come up to the house. So she came up to the house, and she said her gentleman friend was shot in the car. So, right away, I goes to the telephone and calls the police. She didn't want the police called. She said, Take him to the Veterans Bureau. And I said, Oh no, I will call the police. Did you call the hospital, the ambulance? Mr Smith, the officer, did. So, Mr Mick seems a bit surprised that Ethel didn't want the police called. If the gunman is her estranged husband, William Miller, perhaps she is trying to conceal this. 
After a while, Ethel is recalled to the stand and asked more questions, this time about the period of time between the shooting of Lester and the day of his death. Did Lester ever say anything to her about who he thought the gunman was? And Ethel says no, he barely said a word about the entire incident. Well, what about the police? Surely the police would have spoken to Lester. He was lying in hospital for a week there before finally succumbing to his wounds, so surely they would have questioned him. And indeed, they did. Remember Officer Smith was referred to a short while ago in Mr Mick's testimony? Well, Officer Smith is also a witness at the inquest. When was the last time you saw Lester Moberg? I think it was Saturday afternoon, about three. And what day was the shooting on? Monday. And you didn't see him until the next Saturday? No, sir. Was he able to talk to you then? Yes, sir. And you questioned him about the shooting? I didn't want to say much about it, but the first thing he said to me was, You haven't got him, have you? I said, No, we haven't got much to work on. And he said, I will get him when I get out of here. Did you take from that that he had an idea who it was? I imagine he did. I didn't want to question him very much because he seemed to be having trouble breathing, and I didn't want to bother him too much. Do you know whether any other officer questioned him closely between the time that he was shot and the time that he died? I questioned him myself. On Saturday? On Monday, the night he was shot. To get a description of the man and to get the full particulars of the shooting. And he didn't have a very good description of him. He said he didn't really get a very good look at him. And I asked him if he had any idea who the man might be or what kind of car he was driving. He said, I don't know what kind of a car he was driving, but I think I can identify him. Afterwards, I talked to her and she gave me a description, said she could identify him if she saw him again. Did his actions indicate to you from what he said that he knew who did it? No, I'm sure of the fact that he didn't know who did it. But I did think that he had a good idea of what the man looked like and felt that when he got out he might see him some day and would recognise him. Then Officer Smith reveals something about a similar set of crimes and this immediately makes it seem that there is some other explanation for these events although he very quickly shuts that down. Mr Welsh from the state's attorney's office asks him, Has it come to your attention that anyone has been holding up couples in automobiles parked on the road? Yes, sir. And not evidently seeking to rob them, but take the girls away from the fellows? Yes, we have such calls as that. It happened about two weeks previously on 18th and Dugdale. Did the man answer the same description? No, sir. We have a man under suspicion of this other robbery. The description that we got doesn't fit this man at all. Did he have an open car? No, this man that robbed the others or took the other couples out of the cars has no car at all. This man took the man and woman out of the car and made the man get back into the car and then took the woman down the road and just as he was going to attack her another car drove up and scared him away. That happened at 18th and Dugdale? Yes, sir. So, the possibility is raised that there have been similar crimes in the area. 
And maybe that's the explanation for this crime, which has resulted in the death of Lester Moberg. Officer Smith says, yes, indeed, there has been a similar crime committed nearby. But we have a suspect for that one, and he doesn't match the description of this suspect. So that theory seems to be blown out of the water. Then the state's attorney asks Officer Smith if the police have a current theory that would explain the killing of Lester Moberg. And this is what Officer Smith says. Our first impression was the fact that it might have been this woman's husband recognising the car and the licence number. And when I talked to her at the hospital, she said that she and her husband were on very good terms and she didn't think it was her husband. And she said, in fact, the description never fitted him. After the man returned the purse and the watch to Mr Moberg and the lady, we figured his motive was to ravish the lady after she had asked for the keys to the car and he told her if she came down to the road he would give them to her and we thought he intended to ravish the lady if he got her down on the road alone. After a few further questions to clarify what the police knew, Mr Welsh from the state's attorney's office says... What description of her husband did Mrs Miller give you? She didn't give us any. She said the description didn't fit her husband at all. Because there is just one witness to these events, Ethel's testimony carries enormous weight. Her description of the perpetrator is quite vague, but according to her, the supposed build of the man differs from the build of her husband and so they cannot be one and the same. But the police only ever asked her to describe the perpetrator, not the husband. And the police haven't seen the husband or questioned him. So I can't help feeling that Mr Miller is still in the frame as a potential suspect in this case. But he hasn't been pursued at this time. So, frustratingly, the inquest can't go much further than this. So, there we have it. The jury decided that this was murder by person unknown. It could have been a random hold-up. It could have been a random hold-up with the additional motive in the words used in the inquest, of ravishing the woman. Or maybe Ethel's husband was involved in some way. There's a clear discrepancy between the divorce papers, which identify that William Miller was violent and cruel, and some of the things Ethel said about her husband to the police, that everything was amicable between them and that they'd been happily separated for a couple of years. Was Ethel Miller covering up something that she knew? Remember, she didn't want the police to be called to the scene of the crime. Is it possible that Mr Miller missed the summons to court and only too late discovered that his wife was divorcing him? Alas, we'll probably never know the answer to any of this, and without any miraculous arrival of new evidence, all we can do is speculate and wonder. By the way, I don't know that Ray Bradbury knew any of this detail. 
he did keep a file among his papers which was simply labelled Lester Moberg, Death, etc., 1932, and in that file were maybe 15 pages that people had sent him, photocopies of newspaper articles, most of which simply recap the testimony that I've been going through today. But most of the questions around motives and whether Ethel Miller knew more than she was letting on or whether Lester Moberg may have known more than he was letting on, none of that was reported in the press. You will only find that in these coroner's papers. But you would think that this would have a very strong, emotional, visceral impact on a 12-year-old Ray Bradbury. Beloved uncle shot dead and spending a week in pain in the hospital, finally passing away, then being buried a couple of days later, and then the Bradbury family heads west, first to Arizona, later to Los Angeles, where Ray graduates from high school wearing Uncle Lester's suit with the two bullet holes in it. It's almost as if the childhood of Ray Bradbury is left behind in Waukegan, and a necessarily more worldly wise Ray Bradbury arrives in the West. So those were the events of 90 years ago, October 1932. And while it's not nice to have such a morbid topic for a podcast episode, probably doing this in October around Halloween, spooky season, is the best time to do it. Although the mystery is unresolved, I hope you found this as fascinating as I have. Next time on the podcast, let's do something a bit happier. See you then. If you've been enjoying the podcast, I'd appreciate it if you could give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Bradbury 100 is presented and produced by Phil Nichols. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. Please subscribe using your podcast app. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and all good podcast places. And please also check out my YouTube series, Bradbury 101, and my other audio podcast, Science Fiction 101. For information on all of these, head to bradburymedia.co.uk.